open the precious oracles of God with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. I have known this text for over 40 years since it is valuable for the true interpretation of 2 Peter 2.1. However, I had not fully appreciated its deep and glorious intent until recent meditation by the Spirit. We are in the middle of a sermon series about the only right worldview, but this passage serves it well. I hope you'll remember axiom number six. God created all things for Himself. Amen. Number seven, God rules over all. Amen. And number 12, God saves unconditionally. I would like to exalt those axioms today with this interruption to our study of axioms by going to this passage and showing you how God did create all things for Himself, rules over all, and unconditionally saves some. The combined effect of those three axioms is the absolute dominion and sovereignty of God over all men. The bottom line that you and I need to see from the text I'm about to read to you is God's distinguishing and supreme love and how He measures it. God chose various ways to measure His love for us, but this measure is not known by most Christians. There is great comfort and glory knowing how much God loves His people, and this lesson will add to it. Isaiah chapter 43. I have briefly shared this with you already at the Lord's Supper last Sunday. But it did not satisfy my soul, nor him who moves my soul. So you're going to get more of it today. Amen. I shared more of it with you in an update, but it did not satisfy my soul. And so though I had axiom material ready for you, I have spent this week to try to open this passage to you. I believe that preaching is reading in the book, in the law of God, distinctly and giving the sense. Right. And so that's what I shall do. Amen. And I pray God to bless His Word to bear fruit. Amen. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Amen. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Amen. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Amen. amen and amen. I love these verses, amen. and I want you to love them and to understand them and to embrace them. The context is our job, 
because the context is our master of interpretation. What is the context for Isaiah 43? Recently, I shared with you Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, that those nine chapters of God boasting about himself were to comfort Israel, that he had raised up a mighty man that would deliver them from the impregnable city of Babylon. And his name was Cyrus the Persian. Israel, the Jews of Judah in particular, were being held captive in Babylon, an impregnable city, the greatest city on earth at this time by far. Because Israel had not kept the seventh day, God said, I will put you in captivity for 70 years to honor my Sabbath. God had named Cyrus the Persian. If you flip over just to chapter 44 and verse 28, Isaiah tells us that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. So there is Cyrus named 150 years before he was born by the sovereign government of God that he would raise up a Persian to overthrow Babylon and he overthrew Babylon in one night. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. There's no evidence Cyrus was even a religious man, but he was still the anointed of God because God had chosen him to be his shepherd for his people Israel, whose right hand I have holden. God was with him to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, one particularly named Belshazzar, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut, and so forth and so on. That is the context. They were in Babylon. There was no army sufficient to overthrow Babylon. There was no rescue that they could see. There was no one of their ranks that would be able to take on Belshazzar and the Babylonians. But God comforted them. In verse 1, he said of Isaiah 43, Fear not. In verse 5, the opening words, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I will deliver you. I am going to order the nations to give up you Jews, and they are going to come back to me in Jerusalem. I have ordered it. I am your Savior. I am your God. It is going to happen. The chapter begins with declared love and promises of great preservation of them. In verses 1 and 2, we sing of these promises in verse 2 in the song, How firm a foundation is laid for your faith. How firm a foundation comes from Isaiah 43 and verse 2. But most do not understand the support and argument for believing verses 1 and 2 and 5, 6, and 7. And the reason for believing those promises of verse 2. And the promises of 6 through 7 are found in verses 3 and 4. Now, if you pay close attention, you have heard these things last Lord's Day and in an update. But I am repeating them and am going to expand upon them now. So we come to the text, which my text is verses 3 and 4. The verses I want you to understand clause by clause are verses 3 and 4. The context is set. The larger context of God delivering the Jews out of Babylon. The smaller context of these particular blessings, like verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with thee. Whatever you are afraid of that is like passing through dangerous waters, I'll be there for you. And then verses 6 through 7, I don't care where you are. I don't care what nation is holding you captive. I am going to order them to give up, meaning give up my children so that they can come back to me. And also, keep not back. 
in verse 6. You're all going to come to me again because you are called by my name because I have formed you for my glory. And this is all true of us. We are called by his name. We are not ashamed of the name Jehovah, nor of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are his, and he is our God. Verses three and four. For I am the Lord thy God. Jehovah God of Israel is speaking in the first person to these Jews captive in Babylon. I am that I am of the burning bush is speaking. When it says, for I am the Lord thy God, we see Lord in all capitals understanding that that is the representation by our King James translators of the sacred Hebrew tetragrammaton, the four consonants meaning I am that I am. The meaning of the name Jehovah. Jehovah is our God. Jehovah was the Jews' God. And he says in verse 3, For I am the Lord thy God. That coordinating conjunction 4 that starts verse 3 should tell you that he's explaining why they can rely on verse 2. Verse 2 will happen for... Verse 2 will happen for... Verse 2 will happen because for... I am the Lord thy God. Isaiah the writer is quite irrelevant at the moment, for the declaration is straight from the Lord. He declared he was the Jews' God. He repeated this personal commitment many times in these two verses. In these two verses, I have ten clauses or phrases, and I have ten occurrences of very particular personal pronouns or nouns. Notice them with me. It is incredibly personal. For I am the Lord, thy God. That is singular. A T, second person pronoun in English. High English. I am the Lord, thy God, the Holy One of Israel, not of the rest of the world, not of the Egyptians, not of the Ethiopians, but I am the God of Israel, thy Savior, Number three, notice thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Ten, personal, specific, intimate pronouns or nouns for these Jews and these Jews alone. He was not the God of anyone else but them. And he's the God of his elect today. We are the Jews and the Israel of the New Testament. We are the Zion and the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all, Jews and Gentiles alike. Incredibly personal. For I am the Lord thy God. And so as we get started in these ten clauses, we have that personal statement made. The Holy One of Israel. He is no ordinary God. He is the Holy God. Thrice holy, as we often say, because of the praise given Him in the Bible, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The thrice holy God. Never forget that Jehovah is perfectly holy. Holiness means the absolute freedom from all sin and iniquity and the hatred and detestation of all sin and iniquity. Let no one question or criticize the lesson that I'm about to give you because God is holy. And what I'm about to give you is painful to hear almost given our infatuation with the effeminate God preached in most pulpits. He is holy and he starts off with it before he tells you, I love killing others for you. My love is proved by killing others for you. That's the lesson. But he wants you to know before he gives you the lesson, I am the Holy One of Israel. He should hate and kill 
All of us. We all deserve His judgment. That He doesn't do it to all is pure grace, mercy, and love by His choice. Let no one think God may promise and not perform, for the holy God always performs. Otherwise, He wouldn't be holy. If He's holy, then He always performs everything He promises. He declared He was Israel's own holy God. And He repeated this personal relationship over and over as I've shown you. Thy Savior. Not a vague and general Savior. Thy Savior. He is my Savior. He should be thy Savior. I speak to each of you individually. Thy Savior. For the third time in as many clauses or phrases, Jehovah has repeated that He was Israel's exclusively. He was their God. But His relationship and role with and toward them was salvation. It wasn't just God. When you make your calling and election sure, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing forth fruit to show that you are one of God's elect, when you do that, God is just not God, but Savior and friend, right. as He was toward Israel. Amen. He's so much more. Thy Savior, not thy deity, not thy supreme being, not thy infinite one, thy Savior. If I can tithe what God's given me from these two verses, you're going to go home on a cloud but I cannot tithe it unless God tithes it for me to you. He had saved them in the past, which gave them great hope, which should have given them even more hope that He would yet save them. The next clause, I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. The Lord Jehovah, still declaring in the first person, reminded Israel of what he had done to Egypt. Egypt had been, before Assyria and before Babylon, the greatest nation on earth. But I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I blessed you by destroying them. I bought you by overthrowing them. I blessed you and built you by ruining them. This is the word of the Lord. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I bought you back from their captivity. I bought you back from threats of danger by destroying others in your stead. That's what a ransom is. This is a different kind of ransom. Jesus is not in this passage. Egypt is in this passage. And I gave Egypt for thy ransom. We know that a measure of God's love for us is the giving of his son as a ransom for our souls. Herein is love lest you think I have forgotten it. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is one measure of love. It is the greatest measure of love. Do not misunderstand me. But there are other measures of love, and one of them is He burns others to the ground for you to be saved. And this is how he speaks. And this is how he preaches. And it is a shame that so many do not even understand this passage, nor do they, have they ever gone here to see that this is a measure that God wants you to consider. Let me remind you of my opening verses from Malachi chapter 1. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Isn't that the very same thing we have right here? It is indeed. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I ruined Esau and I ruined the Edomites to bless Jacob and the Israelites. And he has done that in some of your families. And you know it. And I know it. I thank God for these verses. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt 
for thy ransom. He called it a ransom, the price paid to free a person or thing held captive by another. Egypt held Israel captive and would not let them go. So God ruined Egypt for their escape. Egypt did not send a ransom note, nor was it to their benefit to have done so. But it was still a ransom. You can be paid for captives. Cyrus was not paid. You can be killed like Egypt. Let me just show you Isaiah 45 and verse 13. Isaiah 45 and verse 13. You can be paid for captives. But Cyrus was not paid to send the Jews back to Jerusalem from Babylon to rebuild their city and temple. Isaiah 45, 13, still talking about Cyrus, who is named in verse 1. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And amen. amen. Cyrus had no other reason, no benefit to let the Jews go, except God charged him to let them go. Don't you ever think that you need some price to be paid, some great intellect to be on your side, some strong advocate to defend you. God can deliver you without price or reward. And he delivered them. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. He gave Egypt for them by Moses in one example. He destroyed Egypt and confiscated its wealth for Israel. God destroyed or killed crops. Livestock, water supply, think with me about the plagues of Egypt. The firstborn, the army, and Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's servants had a word for Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10. If I'm going to give you this word, if you can get there, you may follow along with me. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 7. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Don't you know yet that Egypt is destroyed? Let these Israelites go. How much longer do you want Moses in Egypt to destroy us further? We're already destroyed. That statement in Exodus 10:7 was after plague number seven. The Lord still has the pedal to the metal, full throttle on Egypt. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Then, after Exodus 10:7, don't you know that Egypt is destroyed? Then they got locusts. Then they got darkness for three days that could be felt. Then they had the death of the firstborn of man and beast throughout the nation. Then they found the Red Sea. It is often said there were 10 plagues. Yes, there was 10 plagues. And then they got to die in the Red Sea. Right. So there's sort of 11, if you want to call the Red Sea a plague. But it was kind of final for all those in it in their armor. It is not effective to try to swim in armor, especially in a sea where the water has overwhelmed you. Egypt gladly let them depart to go to Canaan and gave them Egypt's wealth to help. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. But there may be a better. Now you know that everything I just said is true. And the Bible does refer to that event of the Exodus of the Israelites coming out of Egypt as him redeeming them out of the, the, the hand of bondage that was down in Egypt. It is true, but not necessarily true in this context. That was a thousand years before this. Was there another event with Egypt that could be referred to that would be much closer to their memories? Indeed there was. And so I share with you another one. There may be a better, more recent event to apply this historical reminder to from God. This is a historical reminder I gave. That's past tense. 
You can know that verse 2 is going to happen because of what I did to other nations for your sake, I am going to do to Babylon for your sake. Here's the other event. Look at Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. So Rabshakeh returned. This is verse 8 of Isaiah 37. So Rabshakeh returned. Remember, he was the spokesman of Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard say concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, and so there was a tactical decision forced upon the Assyrians that they had to lay off the Israelites because they had surrounded Jerusalem because they had to go fight Egypt and the Ethiopians. You say, well, I see Ethiopians. Where's Egypt? Okay, come back to Isaiah 20, and I'm glad you asked. I appreciate you asking. We always appreciate Bible questions. Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, this is Sennacherib trying to take down Israel, and he did take down Israel, but he didn't take down Judah and the Jews of Jerusalem. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians' prisoners and the Ethiopians' captives young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Amen and amen. We always want to let context be our master. Amen. And so we know there's a double fulfillment, though I do not like that expression. And there really is only a single fulfillment. I believe this Isaiah fulfillment, which was fresh in their memories, is more valid and valuable by the context than the one from the Exodus from Egypt 1,000 years earlier or so. But we have this one. And you say, well, where's Seba? Well, Seba is so insignificant, it's not mentioned again. But if you look at a map, the Sabaeans were from Seba, and they are connected to Ethiopia and Cush, south of Egypt on the African continent. And the Bible tells us a little bit about their location, but nowhere else are they mentioned, like in Isaiah or in Kings. It's just right here that we have it in Isaiah 43. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Look what God did to Egypt for the ransom of the Jews in Jerusalem when Hezekiah and the Jews were scared that Sennacherib and Rabshakeh with all their blasphemous statements were going to take the city. They had taken all the walled cities of Judah. Jerusalem was left. What happened? God raised up a diversion that the Assyrians had to leave and go fight the Ethiopians and the Egyptians. And they were irritated that they had to lift their siege on these rebellious Jews in Jerusalem. Look what they did to those Egyptians. They destroyed them. Made them prisoners. Stripped them. Made them wear ultimate miniskirts. Showing their buttocks. It's in the Word of God. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. You can enjoy both of them because both of them are described in the Bible as the price paid for Israel to come out of Egypt. But this is a little different here and it's a little more recent. And I go with this one, though I love the latter one as well. And I just love the word of God because I know I have verses about God redeeming them out of the hand of bondage, applying back to the time of Pharaoh. But here we have it right there in Isaiah 20. And so we have explained to us, I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I delivered you from two things. I lifted the Assyrian siege of the city by making them go fight Egypt, and I destroyed Egypt. And the second reason, if you know the history, the second reason is the Jews were tempted to call on Egypt 
to come to their aid. And so God took away the nation that they were tempted to call for aid and destroyed them so they wouldn't violate their faith and commitment to God and call on Egypt. It's just, it is just beautiful. But to build the faith of Israel, what did he do? Destroy all the Egyptians. To lift the siege, what did he do? Destroy the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, and Seba. And you know what he did later when they came back? He killed 185,000. That is another ransom price, isn't it? He killed 185,000 for the Jews to live. God thus defeated Egypt by Sennacherib and other leaders of the Assyrian armies. God ruined three nations to keep Israel from trusting them and to divert Sennacherib. It says, Ethiopia and Seba, for thee, for thee. I gave the Ethiopians, and I gave Seba for thee. We could go back to the time of Asa and the one million Ethiopians that came against Judah, and we could go to 2 Chronicles 19 and read about it, but it's not necessary because I believe the context sort of confines us to what happened recently in connection with Egyptians. And the, the one million man army of the Ethiopians in 2 Chronicles 19 did not involve the Egyptians. But back there, what I just showed you in Isaiah 20, it involved Egyptians, Ethiopians together. And so we go with that. And we can move on to verse 4. I hope you understand the last half of verse 3. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. These are the words I quote in my sleep. These are the words I quote during the day. These are the words my wife has to hear from me repeatedly. Just wandering around the house, meditating. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. It is a phenomenal statement. I proved my love for you by killing all competitors. I proved my love for you by killing those that boasted that they had a God. I proved my love for you by killing those that boasted I was their God. That's, as, that's pretty good. That's pretty special. I know 1 John 4.10. Can you quote it to me? If you're going to think for even one second in your heart that I have forgotten the ransom paid by the Lord Jesus Christ, I can quote 1 John 4.10. Can you? I just want to remind you that I'm showing you another measure of the love of God because that's what He's doing right here. Fear not. Don't be afraid, you Jews in Babylon. Look what I did to Egypt. Look what I did to Ethiopia. Look what I did to Seba. I'm going to do the same thing all over again. Fear not. I am your Savior. I'm going to order those nations to give you up and you're all going to come back because thou wast precious in my sight. Verse 4. Since, since thou wast precious in my sight, Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. I have loved thee since thou wert precious in my sight, and thou wast honorable. Why were they in Babylon? For their sins. The Jews were in Babylon for their sins. Then how were they honorable? Because he had chosen to honor them as vessels of honor, and no more. They weren't honorable. They were idolaters. They had violated the Sabbath. They weren't honorable in an active sense. They were honorable in a passive sense. And that's by the choice of God to make vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor from the same lump of human clay. Romans chapter 9 teaches us that. Since thou wast precious in my sight. And for those of you that read the preparatory chapter last evening, Deuteronomy 7, you know why they were precious in his sight? Because he chose for them to be precious in his sight. They were the least and smallest of all nations. They were slaves in Egypt. They were nothing. They were rebellious. They gave him fits in the, land, in the wilderness for 40 years. He wanted to burn them to cinders repeatedly, but Moses interceded on their behalf. But they were precious by his choice that they would be his chosen people on earth. And you read it. And you read exactly that. You are a special people to me. I have called you out of this world, and I've made you special. 
since thou wast precious in my sight, since you are my covenant people, since I have committed myself to you, thou wast honorable. You were honorable because I was committed to you to honor you as a people. So I chastened you in Babylon, and I am bringing you back, and I have loved you. And he moves to the perfect tense because it's getting better. This is building blocks, my friends. We got a few in verse 3, and now we have them in verse 4. Past, past, perfect, future. What's the future? Oh, yes. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it in the future. I'm going to burn Babylon to the ground. I'm going to kill Belshazzar in one night. I'm going to give people for thee. So the ugly duckling, the ugly duckling at the high school dance has had no one come and ask for a dance. Then a man comes and finally says, will you dance with me? And they dance. Now, please just forgive my metaphor. I really hate them. I really don't believe they have any value, but I've started this one. I might as well finish it. They dance for a while. Let's assume they have a longer relationship than a dance. I love you. Whoa. The L word's pretty important. L word means a lot to girls. The ugly duckling has this very handsome dude dancing with her and telling her that he loves her. That has some meaning. The L word has some meaning. I love you. And I hate every, every other one of the dogs in this gym. Every other girl in this gym I hate and despise because I love you. Now that sounds better. <laughs> you know, because the little ugly duckling, she's looking around. Every girl in there is better, better looking than she is. But the Lord says, but the, 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 the dude says, uh, see, I'm not even good at it. And I don't want to be. Uh, they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense. It doesn't say they told stories. I just want you to try to think about this. This is incredible. This is incredible right here. I love you, and I despise those ugly dogs that are in this gym. But the Lord goes further. I'm going to kill them all tonight. And see, I, see the metaphor fall. Try to come up with a metaphor. If you can come up with a metaphor... If you can come up with a metaphor for this passage, I'll listen to it. I have, I have struggled all week, and there ain't nothing. How do we compare the love of God for us and Him giving Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba for us? Since thou wast precious in my sight. Precious by their obedience? Not a chance. Precious by their faithfulness? No. Precious because I set my love on you. Did you read in Deuteronomy 7 last night why He loved them? Did, did you get it? Because I loved you. No, wait a minute. That's the answer to the question, why did you love them? Because I loved them. What does that mean? He chose to love them. For it is God, in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, for I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Compassion is the choice of God because none of us deserve to be loved. It's His choice. It's not even a constraint of His nature. His nature does not require Him to love sinners. He chose to love sinners to display an aspect of His nature that otherwise would not be seen for His glory. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. You are an object of my honor. I will honor you against the Babylonians. I will honor you against the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Chaldeans. I will honor you. It is not by their obedience that these things happened because they were in Babylon for their wickedness. He is describing his covenant relationship toward them. Do you remember from Deuteronomy 7 last night how he referred to that covenant? I will keep my covenant. Since... Thou wast precious in my sight. Thou hast been honorable. See, the honor and the honorableness of the second clause 
is dependent on God seeing them as precious rather than their obedience. I do not want to spend any more time. I hope you can see that. None of us are precious by nature. None of us are honorable by nature. But are there vessels of honor? Are they honorable by nature or honorable by God's electing choice? They're honorable by God's electing choice, and that is true here as well. And I have loved thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, he starts to move forward. Thou hast been honorable. I am going to destroy the dishonorable ones outside of my covenant in Babylon for your salvation. I have loved thee. That is perfect tense. That is a past love that is still true in the present. It's not, I love thee, that's past tense. I have loved thee makes it, I still love thee. He is transitioning beautifully into the future tense. And I have loved thee. So don't be afraid. Don't worry. The basis for my promised protection is, I've loved you. The basis for me calling all of your relatives out of all the nations is because I have loved you. And because I have loved you, and because I have given others in the past for you, Therefore, we have a conclusion drawn. Therefore, will I give men for thee. I will kill Belshazzar for thee. I will let Cyrus kill Belshazzar for thee. I will let Darius the Mede have the city of Babylon for thee. And the Babylonians and Chaldeans that will be slaughtered that night, I give them for thee. I have allowed Cyrus to take the impregnable city of Babylon, who has said, we shall sit a queen forever in one night for thee. The slaughtered Babylonians I give for thee and people for thy life. Do you understand this? He would prove his love of the Jews by killing others in their place. You have not heard very many sermons on this text or that lesson of God's love. That is the measure of God's love he wants you to get from these two verses. I gave Egypt and Ethiopia and Seba for thee, and I will give others for thee. I will give other men for thee. I will give their lives for thee. I will burn them to the ground. I will destroy them for thee. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? There is absolutely nothing in us for that distinction and differentiation to be made, that discrimination that God made. We should all be burned to the ground, as I have been saying. We should all be killed. We should all be thrown in the lake of fire for eternity. But he has chosen to send some there and others not there so that he can approve both sides of his attributes. His wrath and his power, he needed to choose some to send to everlasting torment to prove his wrath and his power, and he chose them. Therefore, that ransom of them allowed him to save others, to show his glor the glory of his grace. And so there are vessels of mercy, and there are vessels of wrath. There are vessels of honor, and there are vessels of dishonor. What is the therefore, therefore in verse 4? It's drawing a conclusion. What is the conclusion? He would prove love and that he was their savior by killing others. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable and I have loved thee. And this is how I have shown it, and this is how I will show it. Therefore, because I love thee, and because you're precious to me and they are not, because you are honorable to me and they are not, I will give men for thee. I will take down the Chaldeans and the Babylonians for thee. And I will give people for thy life. Lord, we are not worthy to even read such things. We know that Israel was not precious nor honorable by nature nor by conduct 95% of the time. And we know the same about us. But we thank thee and we praise thee and we bless thee for giving others in our stead that you might save us. Yeah. Not because of us, 
because it seemed good in thy sight. Amen. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us give glory, but unto thy name and for thy truth's sake. Amen. The simple lesson. How much does God love you? Wherein have you loved us? The Jews said in Malachi 1, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? God wants us to think about the distinction that he makes in the human family. And he makes them. The simple lesson, how much does God love you? It is measured several different ways, but make sure you get the one today. It's measured by man's terrible rebellion and his insatiable sinful depravity that God saves us in spite of it. It's measured by the eternal torment of hell's fires that the elect are saved from. It's measured by the eternal inheritance of a perfect new heaven and earth. It's measured by God's gift of his son for your redemption. And it's measured by the others he sacrifices in your place. And God chose to tell the Jews to measure his love for them by what he did for others. God's love for his people is greater than you think or know. By his revealed measure of this passage and other related passages like Malachi chapter 1. He loves his people in great distinction from his hatred for all other peoples on earth. And he used twins in the womb of Rebekah to prove it. Here's where the doctrine of reprobation fits so perfectly. God gladly kills anyone that gets in the way or threatens his children and their success. So many places could be turned to, but let me turn you to two Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 8. God kills anyone that gets in the way or threatens his children and their success when that is his choice. You say, well, what about the 1260 years? He had a different providential choice for that period of time. And what a difference he made at the end of it. And what a difference he made to those that perpetrated it. What a difference he made to the Jews and the Romans for crucifying his son. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 8, The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. God delivers the righteous from trouble. And whatever trouble they were facing, he just picks the wicked up and shoves it right in front of the speeding train. The righteous are in front of the train, he pulls them off the track, and he puts the, the wicked in front of the train. 21 in verse 18. And there's full commentaries to go with these verses, as you know. Proverbs 21 and verse 18. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous. Should we be surprised to find ransom used this way again? The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the transgressor for the upright. God is going to punish the wicked instead of the righteous. He's going to punish the transgressor instead of the upright they will be the ransom for the righteous. He will buy them back from their trouble. He will forgive their sins and punish others in their place. Let me illustrate it for you. The lesson illustrated. Economic theory, before I get to the illustrations, economic theory declares that the value of a thing is determined by what you will exchange for it, and money is the medium of exchange. And so that's how prices are developed. What will you not buy so that you can buy this? And that creates an equilibrium among those things in the market. That's economic theory. But what about love theory? What about love economics? He demonstrates his love by hating and killing all competitors and boasters. If the value of a thing is determined by what will be exchanged for it, we can look into the human family and see that God destroyed Egypt and destroyed the Hittites and destroyed seven nations of Canaan and destroyed the Babylonians and destroyed the Assyrians and burned Nineveh to the ground for his people. That's, that's love economic theory. How much does God love Israel? Well, he burned all these other competitors to the ground. They're valued far above them. Did God kill animals in the Garden of Eden for skins to clothe Adam and Eve? Did he drown the earth to keep his children from marrying the world's pagans? 
Did he kill a ram to save the life of Isaac at Abraham's hands? Do you know this list is long? So, did he annihilate Canaan's seven nations to give their stuff to his own? Nice furniture? Decor? Beds? Curtains? Blinds? Was it all there? Yeah, all of it was there. Wells dug? Vineyards planted? And matured? City walls built? Infrastructure all there? God did it. You say, it doesn't sound fair. No, we should all be in hell. It doesn't sound fair. It sounds like grace and mercy and a covenant preciousness. Did God kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night? Did God raise war to distract Saul from killing David when Saul had David surrounded? Are you familiar with that story in 1 Samuel 23? Did God overthrow the Byzantine Empire by the Ottoman Turks in 1453? You say, what is the Byzantium Empire? It is the, it is the Eastern Roman Empire after the Visigoths overthrew Rome in 476 A.D. They moved their headquarters to Constantinople. And it was called the Byzantium Empire, and it lasted for a thousand years and was overwhelmed by the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims, in 1453. You say, well, what did all those people get killed for? So that Greek manuscripts would flood Europe for Johannes Gutenberg, who had invented the movable printing press in 1438. And for Erasmus, Tyndale, and Stevens to give us our King James Bibles. What happened to the Spanish Armada in 1588? Destroyed. What happened at Waterloo in 1815? The French destroyed. How much gospel has come out of France? Let's just round off, okay? None. How much gospel has come out of England? A lot. Who owned the land that you're sitting on right now? How many of them were there when Columbus landed in the West Indies? Ten million. How many were there in 1900? 237,000 by count on reservations. You say you're sounding nasty. I'm not nasty. I'm just telling you the facts. God replaced the Indians and gave us this land. You say, but there was some wicked deeds done in that process. Okay, so next question. I just want you to know from Acts chapter 17 that God hath determined the times beforehand. The times of all political events have already been determined by God. And you you all seem to like this land. You plant gardens and think that the dirt is yours. And you're not Native Americans. You just happen to be Americans. You say, are you, do you really think like that about history? Absolutely, absolutely every single time. There is no other way to think about history. There were 10 million Indians, and there was only 237,000 left by count. Most of the deaths were not by musket balls, but due to the diseases that we brought onto this continent. 85, 90% of all that were killed. How about the Battle of Britain? What do you think is going to happen at the Battle of Britain? How much gospel has come out of Germany? None. What is the Battle of Britain? The Battle of Britain was 12 months of Adolf Hitler throwing his air force at the little island of Britain to see if they could destroy them. Britain lost 15,828 total civilian and military deaths, 15,000 out of 40 million. Germany could have taken the island, but God had other plans. God gave the leader of Germany insatiable greed and a violent personal hatred for Joseph Stalin. So he amassed four and a half million men on the Eastern Front to attack the Soviet Union on three fronts, three columns, because he had enemies out of whom the gospel has never come, Germany and the Soviet Union. 
15,000 died in the Battle of Britain, which is hardly anything in comparison to what could have happened and what did happen to Germany and to the Soviet Union. These numbers are absolutely staggering, and I give God all the glory because all the times, all the political events were determined beforehand by the God who sacrifices some to preserve others. Right. And the gospel came out of England, and it came to America, and we, we had a Christian, if it was only in lip service in some ways, we had a Christian coalition against the atheist coalition. There's not gonna, it's not even going to be close. In six months, on the Eastern Front, Russia lost 3.2 million men because they don't know how to fight. I mean, please remember, whenever you read about Russia and they try to scare us in the news, just go back and read a little bit about history. They had to have three branches of their service and secret police to stand behind the army shooting anyone that turned around to force them to go forward because they have no character when it comes to battle. The Germans fought. Don't get me off on that subject. Why'd you do that? The Battle of Britain. Britain lost less than 1% of its population in World War II. Right there next to the action with the Battle for Britain, less than 1% of its total population. Germany lost 8.5% of its total population in World War II. The Soviet Union lost 14% of its population in World War II. We lost one-third of 1% fighting two world wars on two fronts in two different theaters, one-third of 1%. God makes differences. When Paul came to Mysia, much more could be said about that. 27 million in the Soviet Union. 27 million. The United States, 416,000 fighting on two fronts. The Soviet Union only fought on one front. Little Germany. I thank God that he preserved us and preserved our nation. If we had German leadership, how much religion would be here? None. If we had French leadership, how much would be here? None. If we had Cuban leadership, none. Those are atheistic states or Catholic states like France. When Paul came to Mysia, as he's traveling through Asia, the spirit wouldn't let him go north into Bithynia. The spirit wouldn't let him go south into Asia. He only went one direction, west. West for us. Look at Paul. When Paul wrote, he only mentioned two places that he wanted to get to, and they certainly weren't in the east. They were west. Rome and Spain. I want to push west. And he pushed west. And the gospel went west. And we thank God for that. It's the lesson. And the lesson applied for you to think about. Religious wars that Protestants fought against the Catholics freed Baptists after 1260 years of hiding. When you heard in the past or you hear a pre preacher in the present and are convicted most all others are not hearing. Right. Do you understand that? Right. When you heard or when you hear and you're convicted, others are not of that same combination. God has other combinations. Don't get me wrong, but I want you to think about the choices God has made for you. We pray for God to improve our church. He gets rid of bad members and replaces them with better members. And our church keeps getting better because he gives a ransom for our betterment. When a brother gets a lung transplant in a few weeks, another will have died for him. God made that choice. And we trust him. Why? I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the Holy One of Israel. What should our response be? We should be constrained by the love of Christ. We should rejoice. We should be able to sing a song like, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given to me? and want to give him our lives. Look what he's done for us. Right. If you will think about history, if you will think about economics, if you will think about America, if you will think about Britain, if you will think about the gospel, if you will think about just anything, God has made enormous differences for us. Some of you, he's reached into your families and plucked you out. There was no other believers there. No other convicted, conscientious lovers of Christ there. Look at the differences he's made. And when we stand before him, and we see the wicked cast into hell, and we'll know that we're as wicked as they are. Right. 
cast into hell for God to prove the attributes of wrath and power. And then he's going to take us to his right hand and say, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord for the display and manifestation of his mercy and his grace and his love toward us. Brethren, you are precious and honorable in his sight, and he's given others for you. What are you going to give him? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.